chance again. It's everything is awesome. Oh my gosh, I love this song. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool. Turn signal, park between the lines, yes! Drop off dry cleaning before noon, read the headlines, don't forget to smile, always root for the local sports team. Sports team! Always return a compliment. Hey, you look nice. So do you. Drink overpriced coffee. There you go, that's $37. Wow, awesome! Everything is awesome. Did you see where are my pants last night, buddy? to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the library that we love from the second chapter of Acts. The community continually committed themselves to learning what the apostles taught them, gathering for fellowship, breaking bread, and praying. Everyone felt a sense of awe because the apostles were doing many signs and wonders among them. There was an intense sense of togetherness among all who believed, They shared all their material possessions and trust. They sold any possessions and goods that did not benefit the community and used the money to help everyone in need. They were unified as they worshipped at the temple day after day. In homes, they broke bread and shared meals with glad and generous hearts. The new disciples praised God, and they enjoyed the goodwill of all people of the city. Day after day, the Lord added to their number everyone who was experiencing liberation. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. It sure sounds like it in Acts 2, doesn't it? Everything sounds awesome. According to church tradition, these verses from the end of the second chapter of Acts were written by Luke the same guy that wrote the Gospel of Luke. In fact, most scholars agree that the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were actually one work, that they were meant to be read as part one and part two of the larger story that Luke is telling. And the scene that Luke sets for us at the end of Acts 2 is of a community of disciples who are committed to daily living out their faith in awesome ways. They're gathering together to study, to worship, to break bread, to pray. They're filled with awe, seeing signs and wonders. They're caring for each other, selling their possessions to support those in need. And they're all well-loved and respected in the community. And God is adding to their number each day. 
Theologian and scholar Dallas Willard once wrote, the aim of God in history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with God as the prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. According to the passage we just heard, it sounds like it's happening. Here we are at the beginning of the Christ-following faith, and everything is as it should be. Everything is awesome. There's a reason that millions of Christians have looked to these verses for thousands of years in an effort to discern what their communities and churches should look like. We have founded churches and denominations on these five verses that we heard this morning. In virtually every city that you, go, you find in the United States, you'll most likely be able to find a church that has as its mission statement or its core value or even its very name a reference to Acts 2, a reference to these five verses. The Acts 2 church. We love this because everything is awesome. Being the logical Greek thinkers that we are, we have, we have a history of analyzing this awesomeness and breaking it down so that we can understand it. We've derived formulas for church success and church growth from these verses, like any logical Greek thinker would. From these verses, we've pulled out what we call the four marks of the church and concluded that they are an instructive formula calling for people to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to sharing and caring for each other, to, to the to breaking of bread or dining together, and to prayer. We have concluded that if we adhere to these four marks of the church, then everything will be awesome. We've also historically demonstrated our ability to use this formula in explaining our problems and failures, meaning if everything is not awesome in the church, it's because we're failing to keep to the formula. Our building campaigns crater. Our membership drives fail. Worship attendance goes down because we're not committed enough to studying God's word. Or we're not dedicated enough to prayer. Or we're not doing a good enough job caring for the poor. Or we don't celebrate communion enough. We surmise that our failure to keep one or more of the four marks of the church is why everything is not awesome. The problem with this line of thinking is that it's built on the premise that Luke intended to provide his audience with the formula for making everything awesome. Once more, are we to assume that the standards of awesomeness are the same no matter where we are in the world or when we are in history? Is what passed for awesome and success in first century Palestine the standard for everyone, everywhere, forever? I'm not so sure. And if the point of Luke's description of the community at the end of Acts 2 is to convey the ideal, the four marks of the church, to all future generations as a formula for success, then why do we find the ideal at the beginning of the story? We're in Acts 2, the beginning of the story, and the story goes on for this. The story goes on after this. It goes on for 28 more chapters. And as the story goes on, everything does not stay awesome. Does that mean that the early disciples failed to stick to the formula? 
The community described in Acts 2 goes on to face incredible pain and suffering and chaos. It starts out awesome, but awesome is not where it's headed. What is Luke doing? What else could this summary be about if it's not supposed to be our formula for winning for how to build an awesome church? Now, to begin to wrestle with that question, it might help us to understand a little bit about Luke's audience. After all, Luke was writing to specific people. Who were they? What were they experiencing? What questions were they facing? In his book, Heart and Mind, Dr. Alexander Shia posits that Luke Acts was written to a community of Christ followers in Antioch in the mid-80s of the first century. Now, this was not a good time to be a Jew, let alone a Christ-following Jew, in the Roman Empire. Ten years earlier, in 70 CE, the Roman emperor Vespasian had sacked Jerusalem, leveled the temple, and massacred all the priests. Without the temple, the faithful had lost the central place of practicing their faith, keeping the rituals and observances. And without the priests, the people had no religious leadership to guide and mediate religious life and practice. Judaism was in total disarray, filled with chaos and uncertainty. The Pharisees, who were educated teachers of Jewish religious law, something akin to a seminary professor, stepped into the vacuum in an effort to somehow unify and guide the faith. Now, oftentimes, the human response to chaos and uncertainty, like our forebears were facing, is fear, especially of anything that is different. When we're scared, we tend to long not only for unity, but for the perceived safety of unison, We don't want different voices. We want one voice, everyone singing in a full-throated chorus together, and we are suspect of anyone not singing the right tune. Fearing that the Christ-following community was too different and therefore a threat to the Judaism they were attempting to unify and stabilize, the Pharisees determined to shun and drive out the Christ-followers. They were forcibly removed from their homes, long-held Friendships and familial ties were severed. In the fervor of protecting their religion, the Pharisees even wrote a formal curse against the Christ followers that was added to the close of every Shabbat service. Anyone who failed to recite this curse aloud at the end of the service was deemed suspect. Now it's amidst this upheaval that Luke begins to write These are the people to whom Luke is writing, the disenfranchised Christ followers who are being cast out. Luke's audience understood that they were being severed from Judaism, run out of the family. Their reality was framed with pain, anger, bitterness, and resentment. How were they to move forward in the face of being cursed by the Pharisees, abandoned by their friends and family, and oppressed by Rome? Should they dispute and defend themselves? Should they take up arms and fight? Should they repent, deny the Christ, and return to to traditional practice? How were they to process the hurt and resentment that threatened to poison their lives? These are the questions facing Luke's audience. 
And these are not the kind of people that you tell everything is awesome. So what's Luke doing? What question could Luke be trying to address when he offers the idyllic description of the early Christian community in Acts 2? Before we answer that, consider this. Luke doesn't appear to be creating Luke-Acts out of thin air. He's not just making it up as he goes along. His writing is rooted in earlier teaching, earlier wisdom. I would submit to you that Luke is in dialogue with the book of Leviticus, the third book of the Torah. Let me give you some examples. In the 22nd chapter of Leviticus, there is a list of at least 10 different kinds of people who are described as unworthy of presenting a food offering to God because of what Leviticus calls their defects. And I am purposely going to do air quotes in this. The list includes those who are blind or lame or deformed or diseased. Leviticus 22 declares that these defected people must not approach the altar because it would desecrate the sanctuary of the Lord. In the story that Luke tells, however, every single person on that list from Leviticus 22 interacts with Jesus. Every single one of the defects deemed unworthy to commune with God in Leviticus literally communes with God on earth in Luke or Acts. Now that is not a coincidence. That is Luke having a dialogue with Leviticus. Luke is clearly familiar with the Levitical text, and he has determined that he has something to add to the conversation. Listen to these words from Leviticus 25, verse 35. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so they can continue to live among you. And now hear these words from Acts 2, verses 44 and 45. They shared all their material possessions and trusts. They sold any possessions and goods that did not benefit the community and used the money to help everyone in need. Hear these words from Leviticus 26. If you follow my statutes and observe them faithfully, you shall eat your bread to the full and live securely in your land. I will look with favor upon you and make you fruitful and multiply you. And now listen to these words from Acts 2, verses 46 and 47. In homes they broke bread and shared meals with glad and generous hearts. The new disciples praised God and they enjoyed the goodwill of all the people of the city. Day after day the Lord added to their number everyone who was experiencing liberation. Now as we already said, Luke was writing to a specific group of Christ followers facing great chaos and uncertainty, but I would ask you to consider that Luke was also writing as a dialogue with Leviticus, as part of an ongoing and developing conversation with the story of God. And if we think about it, that should make sense to us, because both Leviticus and Luke-Acts are wrestling with the same core question. How are we going to order our world? The original audience of Leviticus was comprised of newly freed slaves who had come out from under the tyrannical order of Pharaoh into the chaos of the wilderness. They were newly homeless and without order. The original audience of Luke-Acts had lost their temple, their priests, 
and their familial connection to the Jewish faith that had cradled them. They were driven out of Jerusalem by Rome, and now they're being driven out of their communities by the Pharisees. They are newly homeless and without order. How are we going to arrange things? How are we going to make sense of it all? What is the goal? What is the direction? What structures are we going to build into? What relationships are we going to value? How are we going to order our world? This is the question beneath the rules and instructions of Leviticus. And this is the question beneath the story of Luke-Acts. Now, friends, let me be real clear about this. When the question is, how are we going to order our world, the answer cannot be, everything is awesome. That is not order. That is delusional. That is insanity. The truth is, we have no reason to believe that the description of the community in Acts 2 is Luke's attempt to offer a transactional formula for making things awesome. I don't think this is a transaction at all. I don't think Luke is telling people, if you will devote yourself to the apostolic teaching, take care of the poor, break bread together, and pray together, then everything will be awesome. I don't think this is an equation where people put the right things in on one side and get awesomeness out on the other. According to Luke in Acts 2, these people are putting everything right in on their side of the equation. But what unfolds in the rest of Acts is not awesome. I think this might be Luke wrestling with the question, how are we going to order our world? Luke is writing to Christ's followers, facing circumstances that cry out for order. Everything is not awesome. Now, how should we order our world? Luke says, with a common life, worship together, pray together, study together, eat together. With a common witness, care for each other, share with those in need. And with a common good, don't circle the wagons and turn inward. Commune with those who persecute you. Pursue the goodwill of all people. That's how they should order the world, according to Luke. That is how Luke encourages his audience to resist the chaos, to persist, to hang on, to keep hope alive, and let the good news of the Christ go forward. Common life, common witness, common good. How will we order our world? Not with a formula, not with a transaction. We will order it daily in the commonality, in the communion. Day after day after day, even when times aren't awesome, especially when times aren't awesome. Now, to be sure, Luke's answer to the question, how do we order our world, resonates with the story of God. The library of the Bible is filled with stories of ordinary people doing ordinary things with extraordinary faith. Simple things, common things, daily things like breaking bread, praying, studying, and worshiping together. 
sharing resources with those in need, staying connected and working toward the good of all people. But this also resonates for me personally, right here, right now, because I experience chaos and uncertainty. I experience situations and circumstances that are occasionally less than awesome. I have doubt and fear and anxiety. But I can do this. I can wrap my head around commonality. I can open my heart to communion. And once more, there are people all around me who need me in that commonality, people who need me to be in communion. In this world, right here, right now, people are being forcibly removed from their homes. Relationships are being severed. People are massacred. Temples are destroyed. Cities are sacked. And the religiously anxious declare curses over entire groups of people. This stuff didn't just happen in the first century. It's happening now. If I lift my head long enough to actually pay attention to what is happening, not just in the far corners of the world, but right here in my neighborhood in places not 20 minutes from my home, I can easily be overwhelmed by the amount of pain and suffering and chaos. It's too much. What can I possibly do about it? How could I possibly bring about any lasting change? I mean, is it even possible to order the world in which we live? Luke told his audience, yes, day after day. Pray together. Listen together. Study together. Dine together. And the faithful that have gone before us also say yes. They say pursue the common good of everyone, even those who persecute you. Share with those in need. Stay connected. Luke and the ancient audience did. Would we even be here this morning if they had not? The way they chose to order their world day by day made a difference, a difference that by God's Spirit has brought all of us here together today. We are the proof that they made a difference. And everything they did, we can do. We can find people with whom we can study or pray or worship. We can find people with whom we can share a meal. We can release the possessions and resources we don't need to those that do need them. We can choose away from bitterness and resentment and toward relationship and common good with every human being. We can share the common life of prayer and study and worship. We can engage the common witness of caring for each other, breaking bread together, giving to those who are in need. And we can stay connected to the common good, binding ourselves to all of humanity, even those who reject the connection. Like I said, it resonates. We can hear what Luke and his sisters and brothers are saying. We can see how they ordered their world and that by day by day, it made a difference. But these verses from Acts 2 don't just resonate. They also challenge us 
to be in dialogue with the story of God. Luke and his community were intimately familiar with how Leviticus ordered the world, more so than we are, to be sure. Yet in dialogue with Leviticus, they went further. Their experience moved them outside the walls of Leviticus into a bigger world, a world that had more to order. Their answer of how to faithfully order their world developed. It expanded. It transcended. They didn't discard the wisdom of Leviticus. They built on top of it. They stood on its shoulders. Luke and his community reordered their world according to their faith and experience of Jesus the Christ. And that's the challenge. 600 years after the compilation of Leviticus, Luke and his community took it further. It's been almost 2,000 years since the compilation of Luke Acts. Where will we take it? How will we order our world? How is the way we order our world expanding and transcending? Are we standing on the shoulders of Leviticus and Luke Acts and going further, moving into a bigger world, or did we close the book and declare Luke's word the last word? I think Luke would tell us to keep the book open, to wrestle with his words and argue with his wisdom the same way he wrestled and argued with Leviticus. I think he would tell us to leave formulas and transactions behind and be present to the world that needs us to act. I think he would tell us to stay connected day by day by day in the commonality of it all. And I think Luke would tell us that it's our turn to order the world. Let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, sovereign of the universe, who transforms us as we engage and follow. You have instructed us to follow your son, our brother Jesus the Christ. You have given us your story to light our way as we follow. You have provided the testimony of the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us to encourage and strengthen us as we walk. And you have placed in us and around us your spirit to guide our journey. We hear the words of Luke calling us into the daily practices of the common life, the common witness, and the common good. We are challenged by the reality that you are calling us to go further, to add our voice to your divine chorus. But we are hopeful because we know you are with us and we know that you love us. Help us to recognize all the opportunities for communion and commonality that we find this week. Help us to share our experience of your love and of Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.